Did you know that every time you listen to an ad on this podcast, you help cover the cost of producing Find Your Food Voice? Thank you to our sponsor, Equilibria Daily Women's Microbiome Defense. Because of them, my team and I can continue our independent podcast. Equilibria is a women-owned wellness brand with unique science-backed products that help bring your mind and back my mind and body back into harmony. EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense is a three-in-one capsule that supports your digestive health and promotes gut barrier protection. It also promotes optimal vaginal pH. These probiotics were chosen because they are studied for women's health. And I love that you can subscribe. So if you find that Equilibria's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense helps you, you can subscribe so you don't have to think twice about running out and also save 25% off. I just started taking the Equilibria Daily Women's Microbiome Defense after a trip overseas that made my GI tract kind of funky. I am hoping that it helps make things just a little bit easier, easing back in. And also as a woman, as a woman in midlife, I'm always looking for ways to help with vaginal pH. If you are not in midlife yet, just be aware. It's a thing that is around the corner for you. So head to myeq.com and use code FOODVOICE for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and much more. That's myeq.com and use code FOODVOICE at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. All right, let's get back to the show. Say goodbye to the food police and hello to peace. Welcome to the Love Food Podcast, hosted by dietitian and food behavior expert, Julie Duffy Dillon. This authentically engineered series is in the form of a love letter, welcoming you to reconnect with food. Now pour a cup of coffee or a margarita and let's begin. Hi, and welcome to this very special episode 131 of the Love Food Podcast. I'm Julie Duffy Dillon, registered dietitian and partner on your food peace journey. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for connecting today. And I'm sneaking in this extra episode because it is currently just a day before the big, big conference, the Super Bowl for all dietitians. It's called Fancy. If you're not a dietitian, or maybe you're a new dietitian, you may be wondering what the heck Fancy is and why are there 12,000 dietitians getting together? Well, Fancy is the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo, and it's every October. I will be there, and honestly, I will be swimming against stream just like a salmon would be doing because Fancy is really diety. It is really into using that O word um, or obesity and um, calling it a disease and all that nonsense. Um, and it's really important for those of us who are maybe interested in finding another way because we know diets don't work and we know that weight bias harms people. We need to connect with other people who are doing that work. So maybe we can learn more about it or maybe we're already there and we just are tired of explaining ourselves. So I wanted to put this special episode out there for just in particular for those dietitians who may be going or may not be going to the conference, who may be on the fence about, should I be a non-diet dietitian? Should I really be so bold to do that? 
And uh, what I have for you is not a typical episode. And honestly, if you're not a dietitian, you're still going to find value with it. If you're wondering about, do diets work or not? Do I really need to throw away the scale? Or can I maybe do a little bit in between, like do an intuitive eating, but just make sure that I don't let myself go. This um, episode, what it is including is actually a recording of a speech I did many months ago. And the speech includes kind of um, a story about how I experienced diet culture in the workplace and really kind of the emotional side that I experienced and what that did for me and how that was hard and worth it and why. And so part of it's a story, but part of it is also the evidence on why we need to include things like social justice, why we need to include compassion, and um, we also need to help people move away from diets if we really want to promote health. So I'm thinking about maybe if you're someone who is just not sure if diets work for you or not, or maybe you're a healthcare provider and you're wondering what are these crazy dietitians really doing? Um, are they really like promoting obesity? What is this all about? This this episode's for you. And like I said, it's a recording from when I did a, um, a speech this past May. Um, and what I did actually, this is what I do before I do any big presentation is I record myself a few times practicing it. And so I feel a little uncomfortable releasing it because it's not perfect. But what the hell, you know? I feel like perfectionism is what keeps people from really moving forward. And I decided that even if I recorded a billion times, it would never be perfect. And um, I'm really listening to feminist teachers who are telling me that perfectionism is part of the patriarchy and it's keeping us from really being able to express ourselves and to learn from each other. So I'm going to bravely just put it out there. So I can't wait to hear what you think about it. The uh, speech is about 60 minutes long. And like I said, it weaves in some stories and personal experiences and also talks about the research behind the um, health at every size approach, the non-diet approach and intuitive eating. And so I hope it helps. I basically just want you to do what you want with it. You know, share it with whoever you'd want with, or maybe it seals the deal for you that, nope, I'm not gonna be a non-diet dietitian. It's really up to you. I consider myself just your food consultant here. And let me know what you think. Shoot me an email, julie at juliedillonrd.com or find me on Instagram. I'm at foodpeacedietitian. I would love to hear your thoughts. All right, enough of all that. Let's go ahead and get to this episode. When my boss knocked on my office door, I was expecting her to be disappointed and angry. What I was not expecting was to cry. And not one of those cries that's kind of pretty and dainty with a tear just rolling gently down your face. No, this cry was what some would call an ugly cry. It was a sobbing, snotty, out of breath kind of cry. One that had been held inside of me for so long, way too long, and held so much shame. I was not expecting to cry. You may be wondering why, 
I was crying. And you may also wonder why my boss was so angry. I promise I'll get to that in a bit. I promise I will. But I just don't think it'll make much sense if I kind of go into that part right now. I'm here today to discuss the controversial health at every size approach and incorporating it into your nutrition therapy practice. I have been practicing health at every size informed nutrition therapy since 2007. I kind of was on the fence through 2005 and 2006. And because of my experience, I hope it's able to show you what it looks like. I also honor that I'm probably not the best person to be doing this, so I'm gonna be doing the best I can. I could give you slide after slide of research or the basics on Haze. And while I will be reviewing the research, I want to do it a bit differently than you probably have heard before. I want to walk you through Haze in a way that shows you basically the stuff that I did wrong. I'm going to be figuratively throwing myself under the bus as we're taking this journey together. Something that I appreciate right now is for some or maybe maybe most of you. You may be thinking that I'm this dietitian that throws research out the window. I just put my head in the sand And I tell my clients to eat bonbons all day long. I also tell them to never get off the couch or exercise again. Along those same lines, you may also wonder if I believe that the world is flat. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I get that from the outside looking in, Hayes can look a lot like someone who is ignoring research that doesn't think it's important. But my biggest hope for you today is that you walk away appreciating that using a Hayes informed approach is indeed research-based. We're not ignoring research, rather we're using it. I need to acknowledge, as I just said, even that statement right there, that we're probably gonna disagree on a lot of this. And honestly, the fact that we disagree makes me feel uncomfortable. I actually have always felt uncomfortable with confrontation. Just ask my therapist, she'll let you know all about that. And that's probably one of the reasons why this is so hard for me to do right now. So. Instead of going knee deep into the confrontation, we'll get there. (laughs) Let's instead be a bit meek together and start where we can all agree. Why do we become dietitians? I have a feeling that we are dietitians, all of us in this room right now, all of us listening. We all became dietitians for one reason. Well, of course, there's probably one or two of you listening who became dietitians because of your love for biochemistry. And well, the rest of us are still bitter because you skewed the the curve for us. We all probably can agree on some level that we all became dietitians because we want to help people. I know that's why I became a dietitian. I wanted to help clients reach their goals to thrive and know that I was rooting for them the whole way. One of my favorite parts of being a dietitian is that we get to do so many different things. We get to work in a hospital. We get to Um, go into a training room. We get to be on TV. We can work in a private practice. There's so many different things we get to do. We also get to do things like this, like public speaking. And what I found after I was a dietitian just for a little while is that there were certain sides of being a dietitian that came really easily to me. And there were some that were really hard. Public speaking is one of the ones that's always been really challenging for me. It kind of just sucks the life out of me. And There are other parts, though, that I found to be easier and that I was probably better at just naturally. And what that was, was I became really easy to me to just listen, just to listen to people. 
I can remember getting in trouble during my dietetic internship because I was spending too much time sitting and talking with patients. I loved hearing their life experience. And I found that I could easily walk into a hospital room or a training room or a clinic room or office and just sit and let someone know I was listening. I seemed to be able to provide space to let people explore, to open up and be real. So the person who introduced me earlier said, I'm a dietitian who is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian. Did you know that early on in my career, as I was listening to folks, one of the things I really connected with was that I was certain no matter what specialization I'd get into, I was certain it was not going to be eating disorders. The laugh's on me, right? Because I love working with people in the throes of the eating disorder continuum. It's something that I find fascinating, interesting, and I really enjoy. And you may be wondering why I didn't want to work with people with eating disorders. Well, early on, I really connected to the work I was doing with kids at higher weights. And I also worked with kids and their families. And what I noticed is people who had anorexia and bulimia in the stereotypical sense seemed to get a lot of sympathy from the medical community. Yet, Clients with situations where kids were living at a higher weight and exploring that dynamic and helping them, they weren't getting the same kind of support. What I noticed instead is that kids at higher weights were getting bullied at school and then they'd go and tell their teacher and the teacher would say, well, why don't you just lose weight? And then they'll stop making fun of you. I also saw people treated like dirt all the time, even in the healthcare setting. And I didn't see that, even though I know it goes on, but I didn't see that at the time to people who are affected by anorexia and bulimia. I wanna pause for a moment for those of you who are still wondering why the heck I cried earlier. And part of why I cried included this part, <laughs> but it's still not gonna make sense. So we'll go back to it in a second, but I just wanna say that it has something to do with this. So back to working with kids at higher weights and their families. As I was listening to the lived experience, there's something that I gathered as a theme over time. They were all working so hard. They were working so hard to cut out fat or carbs or sugar or calories and or they were exercising more. They were not losing weight or enough weight or they weren't coming back to see me. This is when I started to really name something that I was noticing, especially as it relates to behavior. I saw people working so hard and there was different results happening. And that's when I really started to appreciate that weight loss is not a behavior. It's not a behavior. And as that was sinking in, there was another theme I heard over and over and over again. And it really pissed me off. It really, really probably went against my ego. And as I was sitting and learning and listening to kids experiencing, experiences rather living at a higher weight, I got stumped by hearing this common comment. Julie, you can't understand. Julie, you'll never understand. While on the outside, I just kind of nodded my head just to show that I was listening. Inside, I thought, what do you mean I don't understand? I have sat with literally hundreds of kids and families going through the same thing as you. And there are so many common themes, similar struggles and experiences, feelings of shame, disappointment, fear, loneliness, sadness. And I have felt all those things. I totally understand. I totally get it. A few times, I remember starting to let people know verbally that I did understand. And it only took a few times for me to realize that that was not the right way to go. They told me I didn't get it. So as you can see by looking at me, I live in a smaller body. 
I didn't get it. I have always lived in a smaller body. And if you lined up everyone in my family, they would look like me. I'm also white, specifically European-American, gender-conforming, married to a man, and a Christian. While my life has ups and downs, I was born into a life of privilege. Seriously, I've had lots of hard things happen in my life. And on the outside, there are so many things that happen to me that are easier just because of my earth suit. That's what prompted me to go back to school. I'm trained as a mental health counselor. And because I didn't understand and I didn't know how to move forward with people, I decided to go back to school. I thought this would give me some tools to finally help people lose weight, finally help them get healthier and feel better about themselves all along the way. My very first day of class in the counseling program, I asked my professor, I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Spurgeon, what do you say to someone when they say, you can't understand? And he said, you tell them you're right. I don't. Help me understand. Over the next few years, he also helped me understand my own life more. All those privileges that I just described to you. And understanding those privileges has helped me help people better. He didn't know at the time, but he was preparing me to become a Hayes-informed practitioner. So much so that I think it's important to name those privileges are one of the reasons why I'm here standing on the stage right now instead of many of you. I said earlier, I'm probably not the best person to be talking about this. I'm white. I am in a smaller body. I'm gender-conforming, married to a man, and a Christian. And I'm also financially in a place where I'm able to leave my job, come to speak to you, and take care of my family at the same time. Those are lots of privileges that many people aren't able to take and would not be able to do in order to be up here. So it's important to honor that. So since that master's degree, I've been doing a lot of listening and shutting up. <laughs> really, listening and learning and honestly unlearning because all the years earlier as a dietitian, when I was listening to my clients, I was listening through a different set of ears, one that didn't really understand the privileges I was giving. So I was listening through different types of ears now. And yet I still was in this place where I wanted to be better prepared to help people to be healthier, to fix them, to help them lose weight and feel better about themselves at the same time. So my first job out of grad school was a wonderful position because I was able to do counseling and work as a dietitian. And this is actually where I first worked with people with eating disorders. And I first wore the hat as eating disorder dietitian. And I also still worked with kids at higher weights and their families. I also had a position where I was helping people prepare for gastric bypass surgery and those using all liquid diets from a diet company I'm not going to name. So as I dove into this new work with eating disorders, with people with anorexia and bulimia, it felt really familiar. Um, it kind of surprised me how familiar it felt because my clients with eating disorder on the diagnosis, well, they were counting calories, cutting fat or carbs or sugar, and or exercising more. They were feeling guilt, sadness, shame, fear, loneliness, all the same things. So much shame. And this shame was so familiar, just like when I worked with clients prepping for surgery or doing those liquid diets or the kids living at higher weights in their family. The shame was the same and I was the one pushing it. So this brings you and me to the sob with my boss. Earlier that day, through a sequence of events, it had all clicked. All those years, I have easily felt sympathy and I recognize the world's sympathy that 
ease with the sympathy for those with stereotypical lower weight anorexia and bulimia and the torture they were doing to their bodies. It's horrible torture. But my higher weight clients, the children and their families, they were too. They were eating the same restrictive food arrangements. They were counting calories, cutting fat or carbs or sugar, and or exercising more. They were categorizing food as good or bad. They were exercising a lot or limiting their intake to all liquid diets. And I told them to try harder. I praised their commitment. I failed to recognize because of my privilege and fat phobia that my higher weight clients were being tortured too. I really, really cared for my clients. And I know all of us care for our clients. This is why we do this work. We want to help people. But when it came down to it, I wasn't helping. I was harming. I was expecting my higher weight clients to practice the very behaviors I called pathological and diseased in my lower weight clients. I was contributing to harm. I sat with people as they signed on the dotted line to amputate part of their stomach. I was no longer helping. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. My boss was angry with me because earlier in the day, I was to be teaching a positive body image class for that liquid diet company I will not name. And honestly, these classes were super easy because there was an outline and a script already prepared for me. All I had to do was show up and push play (laughs) and just go through the outline. I didn't have to think. It was to be a 30-minute class, and it lasted maybe three minutes. Here's the thing. The class was supposed to be on positive body image, yet people were following this liquid diet plan. They were torturing themselves. The cognitive dissonance was intolerable. Trying to hold together my values of helping without harming and helping people lose weight were no longer able to reside together in my brain. Words couldn't come out of my mouth, and I'm a talker. Words cannot, could not come out of my mouth to support the liquid diet company. So I stopped. So when my disappointed, angry boss met with me, and I have to say, this, this woman was such a compassionate, kind person, no blame on her, doing her job. And I got a lot of complaints because, you know, people paid for a 30-minute class and I gave them three minutes. When she came in and was disappointed and angry, I told her through my sobs that I could no longer contribute to this harm. It felt immoral to me. I wanted to help people promote health, yet no longer wanted to contribute to that expectation of harming to lose weight. I told her weight loss is not a behavior. I told her also that I wasn't able to help people put on, be put on diets anymore. I was, if I was going to continue to do this, I couldn't put pe- people on diets, couldn't help pursue the, the weight loss, and could no longer do the liquid diets and gastric bypass part of my job. And fa- again, very kindly and firmly, she let me know. I needed to do all of these to do my job. So I quit. Before you give me any kind of props for quitting, if you're thinking in that way, just remember, it was really easy for me to do that. Remember the privileges that I experienced. Not everyone can do this. I had just gotten married and had this opportunity to join my husband's healthcare plan. Financially, we were in a place where I could start a private practice. So I was able to do this. Many of you listening right now, have a very similar story to my experience. And you are still in your position, not because you don't want to quit, but because it's the only way you can make ends meet or it's the only job in your area or you need to keep your health insurance. I have, I have no advice for you. Rather, I have a lot of compassion. So this is where we sit right now. Me with my firm beliefs against dieting and the pursuit of weight loss and many of you doing it differently. <laughs> While my approach may appear radical, I hope you can sit 
after hearing my experiences and just hear me out. So while I'll be available to answer questions after we talk, there are certain questions I always get about using a health at every size approach. And so I'm gonna go through them. The first one that I get asked without a doubt whenever I present on Hayes approaches is, well, wait a second, can someone actually be healthy at every size? And I really intentionally have the slide with the word healthy with the Y really big in capital and bold. And it may seem just like a typo or it may seem healthy at every size equals health at every size, but they're worlds apart. And it's really important to, to tell you why. The extra Y points out really inaccurate assumptions about haze and some errors. First, health at every size approaches, and practitioners rather, acknowledge that when a person's weight is at statistical extremes, that health is compromise, that weight causes harm at those um, statistical extremes. The extra why assumes also, and this is why it can be problematic, that health is a thing, that it's finite and has an end in mind. Let me ask you a question. Can someone with diabetes experience health? Can someone with an inborn error of metabolism experience health? Can someone with the amputation experience health? Well, yes or no, it just depends. And honestly, it just depends for all of us. So health is fluid. It's also a social construct. So a haze approach is not saying someone is healthy at every size. Rather, everyone deserves access to health today, no matter what, no matter if they have diabetes, lost a limb, have an inborn error of metabolism, or they're fat. So I think I just left the fat bomb. <laughs> I just said the word fat at a nutrition conference, and it may be like using another F word. I don't know. It's kind of like a cuss word in our world right now. And I think it's important to unpack that because usually I don't say the word fat when I am talking about people's bodies. I usually say the ones I've already said, like higher weight. And the word fat can be a majorly disparaging uh, way to describe someone. And my clients that I've been working with to help them to reclaim their body and to look at their body as not needing to be fixed, whether we need, rather we need to fix the world. Some of those clients end up telling me that they want me to refer to their body as fat and not higher weight because they know I'm not going to be saying it in a way that's disparaging and because they want to reclaim it. They want to neutralize it. It's not a put down to them. It just is. It's just like calling someone tall or short, thin or fat, a neutral descriptor. An important note is I am teaching my children that fat is a neutral descriptor and a neutral word. And as they're growing up, they're finding that the world does not agree with that. And so that's been really interesting to have to describe and a tough thing to describe, yet really important. All right. So let's turn toward the part of this presentation where we can really just go through all the different layers to a haze-informed approach versus the typical traditional way of doing things as a dietitian. And it's important in order to discuss this to know about two terms that are commonly used in research, and that is weight normative and weight inclusive. Weight normative is sort of what we all learned in school, the traditional way of helping people, and um, includes weight loss. And weight inclusive is the research term used for health at every size approaches. So let's spend just a minute or two discussing the differences between the two. The weight normative approach, again, the traditional way that we've been taught to talk about nutrition, discuss weight and disease as related in a linear fashion. Higher weight 
causes disease. And along those same lines, personal responsibility is emphasized. So if a person is um, wanting to get treatment for a certain condition, um, taking upon themselves to lose weight is one of the, the treatment methods that's pretty commonly recommended. And also weight normative is all part of many public health campaigns. You know, weight loss is used to treat and prevent certain health conditions. So we often see quote unquote obesity initiatives to um, help lower the incidence of obesity. And weight loss, of course, is a part of that and, and teaching people how to lose weight in a public health kind of forum. Higher weight is considered also a burden to society in the weight normative approach. And the way that I see this usually is in the research that talks about how obesity is so expensive and all at the same time can be controlled. That weight is something that can be controlled so um, we can lessen the burden on society by decreasing weight. The words are really important to distinguish the, between the two as well. Not only is obesity considered a disease, but the word obesity is used. On the other hand, the weight-inclusive approach sounds a bit different. And first, the wording is different. Um, instead of using the word obesity, you'll hear people like me saying higher weight, people of size, or fat, like I was talking about earlier. Obesity is not considered a disease. We um, Health at Every Size informed practitioners often refer to that the American Medical Association Scientific Committee rejected the um, idea to name obesity as a disease because it just wasn't scientific. It didn't fit the criteria, even though it was then decided to change to, into a disease um, and to pathologize it, it wasn't what was recommended. And we um, kind of collectively are thinking in that way, that, that weight is not a disease. And weight and disease is a correlation and so again, as a health at every size practitioner, I am someone that considers research. It's not that I'm putting my head in the sand. And when I read through research, excuse me, noticing if it's correlational or causational is really important. I can remember learning that in my undergrad. And um, certainly most research is able to show a correlation with weight and disease, which means that there's a relationship, but it's not causation. Weight-inclusive approaches also include something called social determinants of health. Now, most dietitians were not well-versed in things like um, sociology and psychology. We, got, we get a little bit of taste of those in our undergrad, but unless we pursue higher educations in there, we're not going to learn a lot about social determinants of health. And those of us that are trained in public health probably have more information on that. But social determinants of health are 75% of our health experiences compared to 25% of our health is made up by our food choices and our movement. So things about like how powerful we feel in the world, and that may be including our race, ethnicity, our religion, our gender identity, our socioeconomic status, or how much money we have, our type of job, basically how much power we have in the world is going to have much more power on our health. And it's just something that we as health at every size informed practitioners, we keep in mind that what a person chooses to eat today can be important, but it's not as important as how much power they have in the world. Behavior change and access to health care to treat and prevent health conditions rather than weight loss to treat health conditions is another really big part of using a weight-inclusive approach. And lastly, the other thing that kind of sets it apart and just kind of naming the two different types is that higher weight with this approach is considered normal. It's also considered to be expected and a healthy part of society. 
what I always say is that there have always been fat people, there will always be fat people, and there always should be fat people. So let's unpack these. Let's do that. Let's take some time. And namely, I want to go through particular parts of health at every size approaches that can be con- controversial. And again, it's I'm hoping it'll like answer some questions that you would have naturally whenever someone says, oh, I'm a dietitian that doesn't help people lose weight. This is the type of stuff that comes up. So let's consider the question, does higher BMI cause poor health? What I want to point out to you is most research that we dietitians are using are actually correlational research, not causational. And causation is much less well-established outside of those at the statistical extremes. So higher weight, described as BMI category of obese, is associated with increased risk for many diseases. But again, causation is less well-established. And that's what I want to go through now. Most epidemiological studies find that people who are categorized as overweight or obese by BMI live as long as those categorized as normal BMI. The NHANES analysis determined those in overweight category had the longest longevity. As per this report, which was published in JAMA and approved by the CDC and the National Cancer Institute, this finding is consistent with other results in the literature. A meta-analysis by McGee in 2005 reviewed research pulled from data from over 350,000 subjects from 26 studies and found overweight to be associated with greater longevity than, quote, normal weight by BMI. An interesting part of this research is the weight cycling research. I'm actually going to dive really deep into that in a second, but I want to say something about it now in that weight cycling can actually explain all the excess mortality associated with obesity in both in both the Framingham Heart Study and the NHAYS survey that are really commonly used in the data that we read. According to Strohacker and McFarland from a 2010 paper, they suggest the association between weight and health risk can be better attributed to weight cycling than adiposity itself. So in conclusion, correlation does not equal causation. I think it's something that's super important to keep in mind, especially as scientific practitioners like we are. Okay, another one that I want to just go through and spend some time on is the data behind diet failure. Weight loss is not a behavior. You've heard me say it already five or six times now. And it's important to, to really understand and appreciate the data behind diets don't work, or do they? (laughs) Well, there is zero evidence that a diet exists to help the majority of people keep weight off two to five years out and promote health. Yes, there probably are people in here who have lost weight and kept it off. Yes, there is the weight registry. Yes, there are um, diets that quote unquote work, but it matters how you define the word work. You know, it's got to be helping most people long-term and promote health at the same time. And that includes emotional and physical health. So if someone is going to maintain a lower weight and be weight suppressed, but yet they're living a life of food preoccupation, again, like what we would call pathological for eating disorders, then that's not a healthy life. So again, no diet studies have generated long-term results for the majority of participants. According to Tracy Mann's research in a 2007 study that is in your um, resources, long-term follow-up studies say most people will will regain their weight loss regardless if they continue with the program or not. A National Institute of Health panel of experts determined one-third to two-third of weight is regained within one year and almost all within five years. 
And more recent research by Tracy Mann finds that one-third to two-third of dieters regain more weight than was lost on their diets. They summarize, there is little support for the notion that diets lead to lasting weight loss or health benefits. So keeping that in mind, I think it's important to examine another piece of dieting. Many dietitians I speak with, even though they may know diets don't work, wonder what the harm is in helping people lose weight. What's the big deal if people want to lose 5 or 10 pounds just to fit into a different size or to appear differently and feel more confident? Or even more so, I know many questions I get are like, well, Julie, what if someone is in a very large body? Is that those uh, statistical extremes? You know, isn't it harmful for us to not help people lose weight? Isn't that promoting harm in doing that? And, you know, it's important to keep examining the research on this. And one thing that I know to be true is that there is a real risk of dieting. And using a haze-informed approach recognizes this part of the risk. Not only do diets not work for most people, weight cycling is linked to a number of health conditions as well as reductions in metabolic energy expenditure. So of course this means that a person at a higher weight and never weight cycles will will need a higher calorie level to maintain their weight compared to someone at that same weight, that same higher weight, who had weight cycled, they'll need to eat significantly less amount of food to maintain that same weight. The Biggest Loser study, of course, was a really famous one in the last few years. That was a great example of this. A large body of literature has connected weight cycling directly with compromised health, including higher mortality, higher risk of osteoporotic fractures, gallstone attacks, loss of muscle tissue, high blood pressure, chronic inflammation, and some forms of cancer. I want to go through just a sample of this research. So one in particular that is important that we often hear about is the Framingham Heart Study. Mortality and morbidity were examined in more than 5,000 individuals over a 32-year period. Weight cycling was strongly linked to overall mortality, as was mortality and morbidity related to coronary heart disease for both men and women. The effort cohort study connected in Germany, another research study to look at this, 505 middle-aged men were grouped into weight categories of stable obese, stable non-obese, weight loss, weight gain, and weight fluctuations. Among these groupings, only the weight fluctuation category was associated with mortality over the 15-year follow-up period. And of interest, the stable obese category was not linked to higher risk of death compared to the stable non-obese category. Field et al. published research using data from the NHADES study found that women with a weight cycling history, which was 39% of the sample, gained more weight over time and engaged in less physical activity, but more binge eating than their non-cycling peers. Osborne and peers published a 2011 study examining weight cycling and health in African-American women. They found weight cycling to be common in their sample, 63% of their sample, and was associated with outcomes we dietitians do not like to see, binge eating, valuing thinness expectations, and poor self-esteem. So I don't help people pursue weight loss because of this, because dieting is harmful. It has harm connected to it. And if you still feel like you're gonna help people lose weight, I think it's important to be giving your patients full informed consent about what you two will be doing. That pursuing weight loss probably won't work, probably will lower your calories needed to maintain, puts you at higher risk for mortality, raises your risk for hypertension, inflammation, binge eating, and low self-concept. So keep in mind, all the conditions we tend to blame on higher weight can be explained with weight cycling research. And 
our patients need to know this is going on. Let's look at another part of the research on weight maintenance. What about people who do maintain the weight? What are they doing? Let's examine this. So as an eating disorder dietitian, I know the research supports that dieting predicts eating disorders. What I appreciated in my early career is my clients suppressing their weight via their eating disorder and those pursuing weight loss, as per my recommendations, because of their BMI, were essentially doing the same thing. They all felt horrible, they all felt tortured, and they all had food preoccupation. There is growing evidence that individuals who try to achieve and maintain a weight-suppressed state are at risk for binge eating disorder and bulimia. This likely happens because of food rules and lower calorie intake needed to maintain that weight suppression. Remember, weight cycling has been connected with needing a lower calorie intake just to maintain. This is why I don't think we should be calling obesity a chronic relapsing disorder. Honestly, that is taking language from eating disorders and substance abuse fields and manipulating it to make higher weight appear pathological and that a person should always keep trying, even though with each weight cycling attempt, they are probably just further lowering their metabolic rate. In essence, in order for a higher weight individual to be deemed healthy, they must practice an eating disorder. Weight suppression and food restriction should not be goals of treatment. Here's why. We eating disorder professionals know the only way to move away from food preoccupation is through ending the diet cycle. Anyone who complains of binge eating, emotional eating, food addiction, the only way to move away from the constant swing is to stop dieting. I have tried to help people move away from those behaviors and pursue weight loss. I tried and tried and tried. The research supports this does not work and my clinical observation supports it does not work. Maybe you could do both or maybe a few clients could, but for most people, it does not. I think it's important for we dietitians to let go of that pursuit of weight loss as part of our treatment. It doesn't work for the majority, and it has risks. Encouraging our higher weight patients to enter a weight-suppressed state by dieting is likely physically and emotionally harmful, and hence violates our professional code of ethics. Now we're going to spend some time looking at the health effects of weight stigma. This is another big part of using a health at every size approach, and Weight stigma refers to negative weight-related attitudes and beliefs that look like a stereotype, rejection, prejudice, and discrimination towards individuals at higher weights. As I go through this section, there may be some terms that you hear me say that you may have never heard before or confused about, and they are all in the glossary that I included for you in the documents that SCANS provided. And so weight stigma is something that we will often see as bullying at school, harassment, violence, dehumanization, hostility, negative appearance commentary, pressures to lose weight, and many other weight-related microaggressions. I want to pick that apart a little bit, that statement I just said. So weight-related teasing at school. I mentioned earlier that I witnessed many of my clients getting um, teased at school, and whenever they would go to a trusted adult, often their teacher or guidance counselor, often what would happen is that they would be told, well, let's just help you lose weight so you won't be teased anymore. Now, if we looked at anybody else that was teased, we would never tell them to change so that people would stop teasing them. We would go get the people who were teasing them and tell them what they were doing is wrong. We wouldn't tell the victim to fix themselves. We'd fix what was going on. And there's something about weight and weight bias that keeps that from happening. Dehumanization is a really um, horrible ex part of the experience of living in a higher weight. 
And what I mean by dehumanization, it may seem like a no big deal thing, but it's a really big deal when we watch the news and we see people at higher weights being discussed, not even really paying attention to like, that it's usually about public health outcries of an obesity epidemic, but just even like the way that we show bodies on the screen when they're at higher weights without heads being visible or the eyes are blacked out with that black bar. That's a way of dehumanizing an individual. When people at higher weights are not shown in a way that's normal and respectable and with dignity, then it makes a person look less like a human. And when we dehumanize people, it's one of the steps right before violence. And so it's much more common for people at higher weights to experience violence. And part of that is because of this dehumanization that happens. Anyone in here live in the state of Michigan? Anyone listening live in the state of Michigan? Well, those of you in Michigan are pretty darn lucky because that currently is the only state in the United States that has laws against discrimination based on weight and the hiring process. 49 other states, someone could go up to someone and say, you know what, you're the perfect person for this job, but you're too fat, so we will not hire you. 49 states out of 50 legally can do that. Just sit with that for a second. So I mentioned another word that I think it's important to name, and that's microaggressions. I learned about microaggressions in my counseling program, and weight stigma has a lot of microaggressions brought into it. And these are usually super unintentional from those of us who are unaware of our privilege. They can be verbal, behavioral, or even systemic indignities that let people know that they're in a hostile or negative environment just being themselves, just because they hold less power in society. Dr. Linda Bacon best describes it to me as death by a thousand paper cuts. Because one paper cut, although annoying, is not a big deal. No one's crying about it. But a thousand paper cuts, yeah, that's what microaggressions are. One microaggression that happens all the time of all different weights is complimentary weightism, appearance, Based comments, things like, you've lost weight, you're looking good. This is stigmatizing because although positive on the surface, it still marks people as good or bad based on weight. People at higher weights or fearing being at a higher weight do not feel at home in their own skin because of these microaggressions. Not only do people feel more shame because of weight-based stigma, and shaming never promotes health, weight stigma is related to hypertension, inflammation, high triglycerides, higher calorie intake, binge eating, other eating disorder behaviors, including depression. So really understanding weight bias and how it affects health is important. It's important because one of the, one of the things that I get about being a haze informed practitioner is that I get just a little too political, that I get a little too confrontational. And I told you earlier, I do not like confrontation, but I do it anyway. It feels so uncomfortable for me. And I live in the South. I've lived in the South for 20 years now. We don't confront people. <laughs> we are just sweet as pie to your face. And then we say, bless your heart, and we walk away. But weight bias is political because it talks about policies and laws and regulations and how we treat people and how people have access to health. That becomes political. Like that, that um, approach informs how I vote. And as I say that, please know that it doesn't, necessarily mean you have to be a conservative or liberal to be haze-informed. People identify as either one and be haze-informed, yet it does inform your choices in like who you vote for. So now it may be clear as mud as to what haze is and what it's not, but keep in mind, this approach rests on the assumption that everybody 
is capable of achieving health and well-being independent of their weight when given access to non-stigmatizing healthcare. We, Hayes Informed Practitioners, support the health of people across the weight continuum and challenge weight stigma. That's like the two basic arms of it. We challenge that a particular BMI reflects eating behavior, health status, or moral character. BMI is just a relationship. It's not causation. Weight is not a focal focal point for medical treatment or intervention because weight is not a behavior. Eating nutritious food when hungry, stopping when satisfied, and engaging in sustainable exercise because it's pleasurable is more what it's about. It's not about dieting and rigidity. It's finding what food feels nourishing and eating enough and getting pleasure from that as well as pleasure from our activity. This allows it to be accessible to more people. We also try to minimize weight stigma and help people feel more comfortable accessing care, more able to discuss their health concerns, and less likely to experience bias at the doctor or dietitian. Above all, we take a vow to do no harm. And we recognize that setting a BMI goal contributes to weight stigma. So we don't, we don't do it. What I'm getting from my clients as I've shifted to this approach, not only are they telling me things that they don't tell anybody else, not only are they in a place where they feel more at home in their own skin, but things like triglycerides, cholesterol, self-concept, depression, inflammation, markers that we dietitians like to look at are staying in the ranges long-term. So there are parts of health at every size approaches that I think are important. One is acceptance. And I hope you walk away from this presentation appreciating size diversity. Again, there always have been fat people. There always will be fat people. And there always should be fat people. When my higher weight clients see public health initiatives that are focusing on the obesity epidemic, what they see is that The future is not supposed to have them. That the future would rather us go towards a eugenics approach and eliminate someone that looks like them. That's really problematic. So another part of this acceptance piece is, of course, that diets don't work. And what do? Healthy behaviors. So when I have a client come in that has a pretty complicated medical history, um, some people would say, well, Julie, are you just ignoring their diabetes or their high cholesterol? No, it's not ignoring it. It's prioritizing care for what's going to have the biggest impact and what the client actually wants. Ellen Satter has a fabulous way to appreciate this in her hierarchy of food needs. I highly recommend it. Just like Maslow has his own hierarchy of needs and um, on the bottom is, you know, physiological needs, you know, having enough air and shelter and food and water. And when you move on up, it's things like belonging and relationships. Well, if someone's struggling for air, they're not going to want to look for a new friend. They want to get some more air. <laughs> and so the, um, Ellen uh, Satter's hierarchy of food needs, medical nutri- nutrition therapy is at the very tip. It's like self-actualization. So teaching someone how to carb count would be at the tip. Having access to enough food is the foundation. And having access to food can have something to do with like financial situation You know, um, someone's living in poverty. Well, teaching them carb counting is not going to be the best thing in the world. Having, helping people get access to services that's going to provide food. And then also having a community that better supports those who have less access to resources is going to help them too. And another side of that access to food is dieting. When someone's living in a diet cycle, they don't have permission to eat. And so helping people to move away from diets definitely is priority number one over carb counting. 
All right, so number two is permission. And permission is a big piece that I've gotten from my training with Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Resch and intuitive eating. And food, in order to be sustainable and have things like moderation, balance, variety, permission needs to be there. It needs to be pleasurable and satisfying. And another part of that permission piece, of course, too, is to end weight stigma, permission just to exist, which brings me to the part that's uncomfortable with Hayes informed approaches, again, is that political side of things. So many different people that work in health fields and mental health fields, especially are trained in social justice and dietitians. Let me tell you, we have to learn so much already. I can't imagine getting even more training but we aren't trained in social justice. There is great health disparity between among women, people of color, those who are gender nonconforming and disabled bodied people. That is not okay. Social determinants of health versus eating and exercise behaviors, again, to keep that in mind, that improving access to food and enough food and pleasurable food is gonna make so much more of an impact on someone's A1C than making sure that, um, I don't know, people know the glycemic index of this slice of bread versus the other. You know, it's really prioritizing care in a different way. And as dietitians, we are savvy and we can do better. We are amazing. We are trained to do great things and we are doing great things. And I think we can do better. The way to do better, one of the ways we can do it now is we can increase the diversity in our field because it By increasing diversity in our field, what it does is it increases the representation of different people that often are going through health disparity, uh, people of color, gender nonconforming, and disabled body people. Why don't we see more people identifying in that way in our profession? Most people in our profession look like me. I want that to change. I think it's time for me to pass the mic to other people who look differently from me. And one of the organizations that working to do this is Diversify Dietetics. You can look at it at diversity, diversifydietetics.org by Deanna Bellany and Tamara Melton. Those are two dietitians that are working to help increase the diversity in our profession and retain. I feel like that's another piece of it too. What we know from research is that when someone is not seeing themselves and their healthcare providers, they're less likely to go access those healthcare providers. So we need to see more diversity in our profession. And what it'll do is lower A1C, lower cholesterol, help people binge less, smile more. And along those same lines, and speaking in diversity, we need more higher weight dietitians. Currently, our culture as dietitians is toxic for people living at higher weights. Sure, there are some higher weight dietitians, but not representative of our like cult, our society at large. No, we have a very small portion. I happen to have the pleasure of working with many dietitians in training at higher weights. They're a group of people that I've just found myself working a lot more with. And what I'm finding is it's really almost intolerable to live in a skin that's considered so abnormal and um, intolerable in our world. And as dietitians, we often make fun of people of size. I've sat in other scan um, symposiums where there are pictures and cartoons on the screen that are dehumanizing larger bodies and also making fun of larger bodies. That's not okay. We can do better. And one of the ways we can do that is have more higher weight dietitians. Because if we did have more higher weight dietitians making policy, teaching us in schools, and just being seen then those things would not happen because we would know better. We would know that would be harmful. And I know we can do better. And I know we can do better 
starting with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I am Julie Duffy Dillon, and this is a Love Food Podcast. Do you want access to more food peace? Jump on over to my website and join my email list. There, I share exclusive content that I don't share anywhere else. Get access to these tips and strategies by going to juliedillonrd.com forward slash sign up. And I look forward to seeing you here next week for another episode of the Love Food Podcast. Take care. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.